I do that sometimes too, Genesis. It's all right. Well, speak about doing things the right way. When I was in California and I was a, a manager, first-time manager, as a matter of fact, I had an employee, and he just he desperately needed to speak to me. You know, over a period of several days, like, oh, Ryan, I really need to speak to you. I really need to speak. I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's go talk about it. What's going on? His issue was that he wanted us, he felt like we were, we owed him money, that we weren't paying him properly. And a little bit of background, it's not incredibly relevant, but um, certain positions in, in that area had, you know, job duties, and sometimes they did extra job duties. So what we agreed to do in those cases is to pay them an extra dollar an hour. And every once in a while, it kind of got a little bit cloudy because, you know, maybe they broke for somebody for lunch or there was just a couple hours they weren't scheduled for it. So we had to figure all those things out. So this individual, he comes to me, and he's, he's upset. He looked like he was ready to go to war. And, and he's upset. He's raising his voice. I'm like, okay, let's, let's just sit down and talk about it. So we pulled out all the payroll records. We looked at all the pay stubs. We looked at everything, and we, we finally came to agreement. And we agreed, you know what, unfortunately, he was short paid at least on one shift. And we owed him, brace yourselves, 70 cents. So I'm like, okay, let's go back. I want to check this again. Let's make sure everything's on the, on the up and up. So we went back, we looked at everything, and we both agreed, 70 cents. So I did what any good, mature man and manager would do. So I sarcastically grabbed a dollar bill out of my wallet, and I handed it to him. I said, keep the change. That was the mature thing to do, wasn't it? Gratefully, he was satisfied with the result, and we had no further grievances. We had no further conflict. And I was scratching. I'm like, why is this guy so mad at 70 cents? But I tell you what, that Chris George Washington made him very happy. Sometimes we also have conflict, And sometimes we have to do things and we have to address this conflict. Sometimes, and most of the time, as we hopefully learned last week, is it it does take wisdom from above for us to get through to these these conflicts. Other times, it takes a crisp $1 bill, doesn't it? So what we're going to do this week is we're going to look at at James chapter 4. We'll look at the first 12 verses. Um, And last week, what we did, if you weren't here, didn't have a chance to watch online or listen, uh, one of the things we talked about was this idea of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom and this contrast between the two. And one of the aspects that we saw about worldly wisdom is that it was full of disorder and evil. Disorder and evil. and, And we also determined that selfishness was one of those things that kind of catapulted or instigated this idea of worldly wisdom amongst individuals. And I think really after I looked at that section and this one uh, for this week, I really think James was kind of setting this this section up in in his letter. I think he was setting this section up because here what what James is doing is he's warning us about this worldliness that we talked about and introduced last week. And this this worldliness reminded me that James was writing to a bunch of Christians. And he was writing to a bunch of Christians probably within the context of a church, congregation, or community. And, and what he's doing is he's helping us to see what this type of conflict looks like within that community. So he's talking to you and I and all those church grumblings that kind of happen sometimes. So let's read to see what he has to say about this uh, as we look at 
James chapter 1, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. He says it this way, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit and has made to dwell us in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but grace gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able, who is able to save you and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What a fun, fun section. So much joy, right? Think about what we left off with last week and the contrast we see here. Last week in in chapter 3, verse 18, we read this from James, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he opens this up and he says, why, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And quarrels and fights, when you look at that word in the original language, it, it, it actually is translated wars. It's translated wars. And, it's, it's, and fights can be translated as like conflict or strife. So these are powerful words James is using to describe this wonderful Christian community. All right, so right off the bat, we see this shift from peace to war and conflict amongst each other. And as we also saw last week, James tells us what the source of this is. And I think that's really neat the way he does it. He tells us the source of this type of conflict and war. Second part of verse one tells us that it's your passions are within, at war within it, it, itself. It says your passions are with, at war within you. So the, the conflict, these wars that are happening internally, James is telling us it's because of the passions we have inside of us, these internal passions. The idea of passion could also be translated pleasures, and some of your translations probably get that. It's actually, it's interesting, the Greek word, it, we get the English word of hedonism. I probably pronounced that incorrectly. Uh, and I, I came across kind of a, a definition or description of what that means. And, the, and David Roper, a, a pastor and commentator, says that it, it's not only what, is ple- only what is pleasant, this is the idea of hedonism, it's what is pleasant and has uh, only what is pleasant or has pleasant consequences and intrinsically good. Taken to its extreme, it's the relentless and ruthless pursuit of personal pleasure without regard for others. 
without regard for others. We're, we're pursuing our personal pleasures without regard for others. So in one respect, we can say that conflicts and wars, they stem from our own personal desire. I titled the sermon this morning, Peace and War. I won't spend too much time on the peace because we kind of talked about that a little bit last week. We'll focus more on the war. And we were introduced to that last week again when we closed in chapter uh, 3, verse 18. So I want to kind of give you our main idea, and we're going to branch off of those three things and hopefully get an idea of what this looks like. Main idea is a mature disciple does not go to war with self, with others, or God. And that's what we see in this section of these wars that are going on. And more than likely, you have an idea of where we're heading with this sermon. And that's okay. That's kind of the intent. James reveals to us that Christians, these Christians and, and the Christians even today, are fighting in probably one or more of these wars right now. We might be fighting in one of, or more of these wars right now. And in fact, James reveals that these three types of uh, wars that, that Christians face. He tells us exactly what these three wars are. The first one is this. And it comes from chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3. It's war with ourselves. It's war with ourselves. Verses 2 and 3, it reveals something about our character. And, and it's, it's, it's this pursuit of these desires that we have that lead us to these conflicts. And more specifically, I think James is unpacking this idea and this sin of covetousness. And Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite commentators, uh, he says this about this idea of covetousness. He says, thou shalt not covet, the commandment, is the last of God's ten commandments. But its violation can break all of the other nine. Covetousness can make a person murder, tell lies, commit adultery, dishonor his parents, and in one way or another violate all of God's moral law. It's a dangerous, that's why it's there. It's not something to, to take lightly. The language James, again, is using is very strong. And he's doing that because the nature of, 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 the, of their covetousness produced strong conflict and strong results. And what he's doing here is he's even implying that this nature of covetousness was so bad it even led to, quote-unquote, murder. Now, it's very likely that James was not implying that physical murder was happening within the church. It's possible, but it's unlikely. But I wonder, and I believe he's probably using that term in the same way Jesus used that term. Remember in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about this idea of murder. He says to the, his, his uh, disciples that are following him, You have heard it that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So that it's that idea of murder in your heart because of the hatred or the, the issue that you have with your brother. So the language was strong because the results were strong. And I alluded to this when we opened, but that's a good reminder that he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to Jewish Christians, and he's saying that there's so much conflict within, and it's because they're chasing their own desires. One of these issues with covetousness is that, that people become so infatuated with what they desire and what they want, they'll go to any lengths to get it. They'll go to any lengths to pursue that. And here, James even says they prayed about it. 
And that's a dangerous thing. James is talking about this in verse 3. He says, in effect, they were praying wrongly. They were praying incorrectly. Now, this is not in the sense where, you know, maybe one of our kids gets a math problem wrong. Or maybe one of us, we, we, we use the wrong language when we're speaking to somebody or we use the wrong tone with somebody. It, it, it's not that. I think what he's talking about is, is, is the sense that they're not praying with the right motive. Their hearts were not right when they were lifting these prayers to God. They were saying, I want to pay off my house. It wasn't because they wanted to honor God with their finances. It was so they can pursue other things. That's what he's talking about. It's about that motive. He says specifically that they were doing it to spend it on their own passions. So whatever those passions were for them, we can deduct that they weren't content to what they had. They, didn't, they weren't content with what God's provided for them. And so whatever those passions are for you and I, we can deduct the same thing. That means we're not satisfied with what God has provided and we want more. And we'll see shortly, hopefully we'll see shortly how this is overcome. I came across this cross-reference in my studies, and it comes from 1 Timothy 4. Paul says this in verse 4. It says, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it was made by the holy word of God and prayer. So what Paul's telling us is that, generally speaking, wanting is not inherently bad. But what ends up happening is it's, it's, it's how we pursue it, and it's only when we pursue it in the wrong manner that makes wanting bad. James says to ask. He says, if you want, ask. One other illustration before I, I kind of move forward, and it was a, an interesting one. As a parent, this really stuck to me. A wise father or mother will not give a little child something harmful just because they beg for it. God, in the same way, when we pray for things that God knows will harm us, purposely, he, out of his love for us, will withhold those things from us. And because of this, we should have a thankful heart before the Lord, particularly when we're coming before him in prayer. James says this next. He says that these Christians were not only at war with self, but they were also at war with each other. And we'll skip down to verses 11 and 12. We'll come back to the, the, the meat of the sandwich here in a moment. Um, verses uh, 11 and 12 tell us that, and, and really it should remind us of what we looked at a few weeks ago, right, of this idea of, of taming the tongue from chapter 3, verses 1 and 12. This reminds us that what we have to say and what we say to others, particularly, again, in community, has a strong impact One might say that the solution to war from these verses helps us to see that, hey, one of the solutions might be just to get right with each other. We need to get right with one another. If there is an issue, we need to address it and get right with one another. Christians should be using their speech to build others up, not to tear others down as we see. At times, this might include confronting somebody of their sin. But we do it in a way that's loving because we care and we, when you look at this passage, it's evident this is not what these Christians were doing. These, these brothers and sisters were not doing that. Once again, I'm, think, I'm, I'm convinced that James probably had Matthew chapter 7 in mind when he wrote these words. And this is a very familiar passage generally taken out of context. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1, Jesus says these words, Judge not that you be not judged. 
Christians take that verse so out of context. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you will use it, and you will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is reminding us that we need to examine ourselves first before we start correcting others. And we do that in, again in a loving way. James, I think, is telling us the same thing. James, in the language he's using and the strong accusations here, he's implying that these folks were tearing each other down. They were tearing each other down. They were ripping each other apart. And that shows you that they weren't concerned about their brother's relationship with the Lord. That wasn't their concern. They were only concerned about slandering them and tearing them down. So our motivation for what we do, as James has told us all throughout this letter, is very, very crucial to how we deal with each other and God. And so notice, too, James is actually accusing them of playing God. He's accusing them of playing God when he's talking about this idea of judgments and with their accusations. He closes verse 12 with a very sobering example. He says, God is judge. He is the only one who can save and destroy. And then finally we see this, that these Christians were at war with God. They were at war with God. So we'll bounce back to chapter uh, verses 4 and 4 through 6. And I'm going to kind of do a sub-point here because James here talks about these three enemies, these three enemies of God in these, these verses. The first one we see here, and, and when I say they're enemies of God, essentially these are things that separate us from him and that, and that drifts us away from that personal relationship that we have, which really, if you think about it, those are some of the root causes that we see of eternal conflict and external conflict. First one we see is that the, enemy, the first enemy is the world. First enemy here we see is the world. Again, verse 4 is, is a very strong warning against this concept. Let's go ahead and read it again since it's been a few minutes. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Those are harsh, harsh words. That's a strong, strong accusation. James is using this very familiar picture to this audience of this covenant relationship with God. That's what he's talking about here. He's using this idea of being adulterous because it's not a new idea to these Christians. There are so many examples in the Old Testament about this, but again, the concept here is is this covenant relationship with God is broken when they go and seek other gods with a small g. So when his people begin to flirt with and eventually get into this relationship with the world, they're effectively breaking that covenant with God and making them adulterers. That's what happens when we do that. Here's a few examples that you might want to jot down. Uh, One of these examples is, is Abraham's nephew, Lot. Lot had a relationship with the world, and he ended up losing everything. Right, So that, that's, that reference is back in Genesis 18 through 19. You can read that story. But there's others from the prophets as well. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 
Ezekiel chapter 23, Hosea chapters 1 and 2. If you have time this week, go back and read those. And you can see exactly what this picture looks like. And it will be a very clear picture to this audience of what he's talking about when he calls them adulterous people. So again, Genesis 18 and 19, Jeremiah 3, 1 through 5, Ezekiel 23, Hosea 1 and 2. These all speak to this broken covenant of God's people with God. And that's what he's talking about. So how does this happen to you and I today? How does that happen to people within the church? We've talked about this a lot this year, if you think about it. One of those things easily could just be a drop in attendance in church. Well, it could easily be just, you know what, I'm not going to read my Bible today and then tomorrow and the next day. And all next thing you know, it's been weeks and months and we slowly start drifting away. Maybe our prayer lives are suffering and we're not communing with God in the way that we should be. And over time, that just adds up and adds up and adds up. And next thing you know, there's lines between our Christian worldview and the worldview of those outside begin to get blurred and we can't see where one begins and the other ends. And that's happened even to me years and years ago where there were years where I was just blindly doing what I wanted to do, pursuing my selfish desires. And I fell away and I drifted away from the Lord and gratefully, particularly when we came back to Tucson or came to Tucson, it helped me to kind of get drawn back in to him. Next enemy we see here is the flesh. Next enemy we see is the flesh. So just a kind of a side note, verse 5, James references the spirit. Verse 5 is an interesting verse, and he also talks about this idea of part of a scripture reference that he's making. Now, we, we have fancy Bibles nowadays. We have you know fancy apps that help us to kind of see cross-references and stuff like that. Obviously, the original language doesn't have that, and the original text doesn't have that. But if when we do look at those, those re- references, you, we can't find that specific verse anywhere in the scriptures. So what most commentators, most scholars believe that more than likely he was taking some basic concepts and truths from the Old Testament scriptures, and he was kind of paraphrasing them and putting them together. It's very well possible. Um, another thing to, that some, some translations will capitalize the S in spirit. So there's, there's the human spirit that some people believe it's talking about. Then there's the Holy Spirit that people are talking about because he's talking about this idea of indwelling. Now, again, either way, if it's our internal spirit or if it's the Holy Spirit that it's referencing, either way, it's talking about this internal battle we have within ourselves, that battle of the flesh and the spirit. That's really what he's talking about here. He's talking about this idea and this righteous jealousy that God has for our souls. And that's why we have these battles within. Last week, we kind of mentioned briefly on this topic of the natural state. And again, that's what he's talking about there. He's talking about this idea that that this natural state separates us from God. It separates us from God. And because of that, we all need to be made right with God. And that's only possible through the the cross of Jesus Christ. And it was his sacrifice that makes that a possibility. It's his sacrifice, that substitutionary sacrifice that makes that possible. And once we're forgiven, we can have that communion with God once again. So the flesh is naturally against God. 
The scriptures say this, particularly in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 is one example. Paul says these words, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it is not, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So Paul's stating here that it, the, the nature, our human nature cannot submit to God. It is against God. Which again, this is why Jesus told Nicodemus in, in John 3 that we all must be born again. We all must be born again. That's the only way we can have that nature and, and change that nature within us. And that hope, again, is, is found in the finished work of Christ. Otherwise, we're declared enemies of God. So the next enemy of God is the devil. The devil. Most of us, um, we see this mostly in verse 7. Verse 6 helps to kind of understand a little bit of one of the tools that the devil uses, and that's this idea of pride. There's a warning here against pride. And we talked about this a lot this year as well when we looked, you know, here in the book of James. We've seen that in the Proverbs. This idea of pride is, is saturated all throughout the scriptures. David Guzik, he says it, he talks about pride and humility in this contrast. He says that it isn't as if our humility earns the grace of God, but humility merely puts us in a position to receive the gift that he freely gives. So humility is obviously the, the opposite of pride. And, and we see that here in this section. So if these are the things that put us at odds against the Lord, what is it that helps us? What is that solution? What is that solution? In this text, there's technically 10 imperatives or 10 commands that's scattered in, in, in this text. Now, obviously, we're not going to sit here and go through all 10 of them. But what we'll do is we'll try to kind of summarize those in three other steps. It wasn't until towards the end of the week I realized that my sermon was going to be sponsored by the number three. I had no idea. So three ways that we can have peace instead of war. And we see that here in this. So we'll summarize it with three points. The first one is to submit to God. That one should be fairly obvious. The application of submission, and James kind of turns into like a, like a general when he's speaking to this group because this idea of, of submission is a military term. It's a military terms, and it literally means to get into your proper rank. Get into your proper rank. It's this general idea of subordinates and being subordinate to somebody else. It's a not-so-subtle way of reminding us to know our position with Christ as the head. That's what he's telling us here. He says we need to get in line. We need to know our role. Christ is head. You're not. And that part of submitting to God is to resist the devil and to resist these things of the world. This idea of resist the devil, when we see that word, it's also a military term, and it means to stand firm. I've always actually taken this as you've got to run, you've got to resist, you've got you to run from God. But the, when you look at the language, it's actually saying you've got to stand firm. You've got to be strong before the Lord. It's made up of two words, so it's literally stand and against so it's like you're standing firm, you're, 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 your feet are digging in, and you're standing against the schemes of the devil. It reminded me of what Paul told us to do, to put on that full armor of God in order to protect us from the schemes of the devil. And the next thing we see here is that we're to draw near to God. This process that we just saw, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, 
is an incredibly wonderful picture of the idea of repentance. It's a great picture of repentance. This literal idea of of standing against the devil, but then drawing near to God. And so when we draw near to God, it helps us. We've changed our direction, and we can do that. And he gives us a few ways that we can do that. He says we need to cleanse our hearts, our hands. We need to purify our hearts. And again, looking at his audience, we can probably assume, and he's likely referring to this idea of this ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing before God. Psalm 24, verses 4 and 5 says that, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul, what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. So he's saying that those who are cleansed and pure before the Lord will receive this righteousness from the, from the Lord. So it, we, again, we talked about this a few moments ago. When, and, and, and in order to be in his presence, that we must be declared holy before him. And part of that is that, that ritual cleansing and purification process. The second thing he says here, the second two things, or the next two things, is to be wretched, which can be translated miserable. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and then to turn your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. He's talking about this blatant celebration of sin that our culture kind of spews out today. There's this blatant celebration of sin, and I know each and every one of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We see it in the form, the, the obvious public forums of, of parades and even, you know, uh, different uh, protests. We see it in the, in the media. We see it in social media. We see it uh, at news, television shows, all these things. These are things that are influencing us even as Christians. And, 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 and those are people who are celebrating sin. And he's saying here, be wretched and, and mourn and weep over your sin. Be wretched and weep. Mourn. Turn your laughter into mourning and joy into gloom. We should be hating the sin that's within us. So when we sin, we have to follow these steps. We repent, and, we, and in doing so, we have the ability to draw near to God. We have that ability to draw near, and we enter into his presence. And then finally, we're to humble ourselves before God. I actually had this line written in my last sermon, but missed it altogether. So it was applicable here too, though. Humility can be described as a posture as a posture that opens us to receive God's blessings. And pride, what that does is it, it, it closes us off to that same blessing. Pride closes us off, but when we come before God with an open heart, it opens us up to receive him and to receive his blessings. And we spoke about this again earlier, and, 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 and think about receiving Jesus, receiving Christ, receiving the Lord's blessings is impossible without a humble heart. And it recognizes and acknowledges our sin and our need for a Savior. And we need to be reminded of that daily. So we've seen this morning that a mature disciple does not go to war with self, with others, or with God. And, it, and that's because when we employ these three things, when we follow these three aspects to peace, God draws near to us. And we're cleansed. We're forgiven, 
and these wars that we have within ourselves and with others and with God, they will cease. And that's what we need. Chances are you, you probably fit in one of these three categories. Or you have or you have. So one of these things, you've either been in it, you're going through it, or you will go through it. That, those are the chances. So maybe you've already been to war. Maybe you've already, you're currently in the war. Maybe you will go to war. And in all three of those areas, we have opportunity to, to, to come together, to encourage one another, to lift one another up, to come alongside of our brothers and sisters. Instead of tearing them down, we can come alongside and we can lift them up. And that's what we're talking about here. This, these principles in this passage are not past tense, but they're present tense. That means it's, it's able and it's happening now, and we can do something about it now. These are principles that we can employ today, and we should. So I ask you, today will you submit to God? Today will you draw near to God? Today will you humble yourselves before God? Let's pray. Father, this is... Uh, could be a very sobering passage to a lot of people. And I pray, God, that it is. I pray, God, that this opens up our eyes and our hearts to understand the dangers of worldliness, to understand the dangers of, of, of blurring these worldviews. I pray, God, that you help us to see that it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of, uh, of prayer. It takes a lot of, of communion with you. It takes a lot of strength from our brothers and sisters to stay on the straight and narrow to do things the right way. And, and, and we're asking you, God, to help us. Help us, Lord, to, to be strong and to stand firm and to stand against the schemes of the devil. Help us to stand against the influences of this world. Help us to stand firm and, and, and proclaim you as Lord of our lives. Help us do that each and every day. I think that's necessary. I know it is for me, Father. So I pray, God, that as we leave these doors today and as we go out into the world tomorrow, that you just help us to stand firm for you and to seek you first in all your righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.